Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Something Rhymes with Purple. My name's Giles Brandreth, and I present this weekly podcast with my friend, who happens to be the world's greatest lexicographer. She's called Susie Dent. Are you there, Susie? I am, and don't accept that lovely title, but thank you for it anyway. How are you doing? I'm in very happy form. And you know we've got this new feature, Word of the Week, or Words of the Week, Words in the News, really, because I find I still read an old-fashioned newspaper. Actually, I read several newspapers, which I handle with my own hand. Do you read newspapers, physical newspapers? Not the physical kind. I used to I love it because, you know, I used to live in Soho and I would pop out to the newsagents and I'd pick up The Observer and The Times and, I don't know, probably a tabloid as well, and I would just spend the entire morning in bed eating croissant going through them, and I absolutely loved it. But I just don't do that anymore. I don't seem to have time to do it anymore. So it's online news sites for me now. Gosh. Well, mm. I still get newspapers delivered to the front door mm-hmm. uh, and they come at about seven in the morning, which is brilliant. And I also, I often go into an ITV program called This Morning yeah. and there they have all the newspapers. So usually most days I see most newspapers and it's fascinating to me how often language pops up in the news. Yeah. And the other day I was intrigued to see a big story saying children name anxiety as their word of the year. Oh, no. Yeah. Really? Anxiety has been chosen by children as their word of the year, according to your old colleagues at the Oxford University Press. Gosh, uh, that's the children's dictionary They department. surveyed more than 8,000 pupils aged between 7 and 14. They were asked to select a short list of 10 words, the one they would use when talking about well-being and health in 2021. It was yeah. drawn up from, I think, you, you call it the corpus, don't you? I don't know what that means. What does corpus mm. mean? Well, corpus means body. That's from ah. the Latin for body. So we have corpus Christi, of course. But corpus in lexicographical terms is a body of knowledge or information. So these are the vast databases that we consult to track the evolution of language. Well, they have a children's corpus, which is a a database of material from stories and poems written by children, as well as books written by children's authors. Anyway, they selected the following 10 words to be sent to schools across the country. Mm. Anxiety, challenging, isolate, well-being, resilience, bubble, kindness, remote, cancelled and empathy. Gosh. So they then discussed the words with their teachers and fed back, as it were, the words that seemed to sort of resonate most with them. Mm-hmm. And 21% of them chose the word anxiety as their Gosh. number one word. Followed by, and I think this is interesting, by challenging, 19%. Mm-hmm. 
isolate on 14%. So these obviously are words that have cropped up in this past year and have been used you know, more than, more than other words. I suppose, actually, language reflects the era, doesn't it? Of course it does. Yes, it's the just perfect distillation of a time. I mean, you know, we talk about bottling history. I think nothing does that better than than a single word. I had to choose a word of the year for a magazine that I write for called The Week Junior, which is essentially that the week, if anyone knows that, which is a sort of, you know, pricey, I suppose, of the week's news, but for children. And it's beautiful and it's uplifting and it covers the news, but in a really calm and quite reassuring way. It doesn't sort of steer away from everything, but equally it's just very, very balanced and lovely. Anyway, so we chose resilience um, as our word of the year for 2021. That's good. But anxiety is quite a sort of bleak word, really, because it goes back to the Latin angere, meaning to choke or squeeze or strangle. It's related to angina, which, you Mm. know, is that heart condition where you feel like you're suffocating almost. And anguish came from that as well as anxiety. So, yeah, it's a tough word. Hopefully this won't be the same this year. You know, it won't be the same for them this year. There won't be so much anguish and anxiety Mm. this year. Anyway, that's intriguing. And we want to lift people's mood by exploring... Well, fun things today, don't we? We're going to, the other day, we looked at words to take us through the morning, from the moment we wake up through to lunchtime, covering, of course, elevenses, almost my favourite time of the day. So today we thought we'd move into the afternoon. We've had lunch, haven't we? Well, I don't know if we've had lunch yet, actually. I mean, we often talk about food and drink, so I think we've probably covered it a lot. I certainly um, know, and I remember this, it's wonderful, that luncheon <laughs> is made to aggrandise the word lunch. Lunch came that's first. That's what we think. I mean, it's ah. not nailed down, but yes, it's quite possibly an extension of lunch, which sounds posher. And I always compare it to the, do you remember the Welsh rabbit that people made into the Welsh rabbit? Because yeah. they couldn't, they just couldn't face the rabbit bit. It just sounded too, um, too cheap, which was the whole idea behind the saying, really. But I have a few words for for lunch, and I'm not sure we've done these before. Well, I'm going to start with one that we definitely have done before. I don't think, I'm not sure if people have work lunches anymore, but I used to love them when I worked at OUP. If we ever did have a work lunch, I used to absolutely love it. And I would always end up ordering the wrong thing and want everybody else's food, which I would stare at longingly. And do you remember the word for that? To stare longingly at someone else's food? No, tell me. It's groking. G-R-O-A-K-I-N-G. And we've definitely mentioned it before because this is what dogs do all the time. Groking. Groking. So you have that. If you have... Uh, Can I stop you and say, did you resent, as I always resented when you went on those team lunches with the rest of the team, because I, I don't drink and I try to eat simply and I usually choose the cheapest thing on the menu, I always resented the fact that the bill when it came was, let's say there were 10 of us, was divided by 10. And you ended up subsidising other people's gross appetites. Brilliant. Yeah. If you are enjoying perhaps not a lunch al desco, but have actually Uh gone out and decided that you'd quite like to sit in a quiet corner, which as you know, is litibulating to hide in a corner. If you just want to sort of lunch to yourself and somebody comes along and sits next to you, there are two words for this. One is a parasite, which of course means something quite strong these days. It's somebody Mm. who lives off another person, but actually originally just meant someone who sat down next to you and probably pinched your food. And also Samuel Johnson spoke of a scambler and a scambler is a bold intruder on your table, he wrote. So that's quite a nice one. That's a very used word. Go away, you scambler. I find that very irritating and a bit alarming. You're sitting in a train, somebody comes and sits down next to you and there are lots of other vacant seats and people who who start conversations on aeroplanes. Oh, and then you're stuck. You are stuck. For quite a long time. Yeah, that's very difficult. You might also be someone who pingles, which, if you remember, means to pick at your food. 
or you might guttle it. You might just eat it greedily and uh, get it down your Gandhi guts. Uh, in fact, the Gandhi guts is somebody who really who loves their food and eats very, very quickly. And after that, we've talked about arse ropes before for intestines, but they're also called your gruselins. So you might have a grumbling in your gruselins. After lunch, I love the idea, in fact, of a postprandial snooze. I say I love the mm. idea. Sometimes the idea seems to love me. And whether I'm ready for it or not, it takes me away. Postprandial. What does that mean? Post means after, of course. Prandial. Yes. What does the word prandial mean? That just means a meal, really. So it doesn't necessarily mean lunchtime. It's postprandial means after a meal. And as you would guess, that is um, from prandium. It's from Latin, meaning simply that, a meal. A meal. Uh, so postprandial. You can have a prandial conversation if you're chatting with someone at over dinner or lunch, but we tend to only use it almost in a fossilised form now with, as you say, postprandial. Do we talk about preprandial? Yes. Some preprandial snacks? Yeah, yeah, let's have some preprandial. Yes, we do. When you say fossilised, you mean as though it's an archaic word. We talk about it. Is that what you meant? No, it's a, a fossilised word is really one which exists only in one expression or one idiom and it isn't really used in other things. So if you think about spick and span, we don't use spick in any other way um, uh. at all. Or, gosh, um, helter-skelter is another one. I, I'm trying Good. to think of... So you're of, saying that people talk about pre-prandial or post-prandial. They never talk about prandial. They don't really, do they? Let's have a I prandial. Let's have a prandial meeting means let's meet over lunch or dinner yes. or over a meal. Yes, I like exactly. That. And that's a, one of the wonderful things that, that lexicographers do, actually, is they look at the words which are used alongside the word that you're looking at. So if you're drafting an entry in a dictionary, you look to see what that word's companions are, and then you can gauge whether it's used positively, negatively, or you know what the register is, whether it's slang, whether it's informal, whether it's formal, etc. So it's fascinating. Um, but if you talked about your feeling snoozy, there is a term actually for a snooze after lunch, a sort of siesta, and it's a rizzle. A rizzle. A rizzle. That's our like dialect. That. I'm going yeah. to have a little rizzle. I whistle um, if you're feeling sloomy. I'm very good. Sloomy, I love. Sloomy meaning just a bit slumberous. I knew um, a man who used to always say after lunch that he was going to do his exercises. And it was only later that I discovered what he meant was having 40 winks. The idea of, you know, the eyes going up and down for 40 winks. Where does that come from? Actually, forty uh, weeks. Yes, I don't know why they're forty. Actually, it's a good idea. I'm going to. Um, I'm going to see whether the dictionary helps us with this. Okay. It's but rizzles, I rizzles yeah. is a snooze, is it? I'm rizzling. Uh, I'm, I'm rizzling. Yes, you could use it as a verb. Actually, it's usually there as a noun. And to be honest, it's very old, and I'm not sure anybody uses it anymore. I'm having a little the, um, rizzle. Means I'm having yeah. a little doze. Little yes. dozette. So. I am looking to see why it's 40. I think it might have just been used a bit like umpty used to be. Do you remember in Morse code, umpty was an indefinite number. Oh. And so 40 winks, if you remember to wink was originally to close your eyes completely, not just to blink. And so to hoodwink somebody was to put a hood over their heads so that their eyes were forcibly closed. So that's what oh. wink first meant in Old English. So yeah, I don't think there's anything particularly... Significant about 40. I mean, maybe 40 days in the desert, you know, the biblical yes. references. 40 I'm not thieves, sure. 40 yeah. days and nights, yes, in the desert. Yeah. yeah it's one of those. But one a rizzle, a rizzle is a snooze. I'm going to use that. That's, I'm going off from my okay. rizzle. Yes. Yeah, very good. So, mm -hmm. do you ever have a snooze after lunch? Only when I'm on holiday in a really hot country and it's just far too hot to go out and you've probably had a late night and then it is just glorious. You put the fan on and just oh, haven't had one of those very I tell you, the big mistake of having a glass of wine at lunchtime. Oh, yes, that's it. That forces a rizzle on you, doesn't it? 
Yeah, I can't really do glasses of wine at lunchtime, actually. Can you? No, but when I started out in journalism in the late 1960s, and I worked first for the Manchester Evening News and then at different London papers, they drank in the office in the morning, but then you'd go for lunch and there would be a big liquid lunch. Mm. These uh, journalists, they would literally be having... Whiskey, no wine. They'd have solid whiskey and then maybe beer. They'd drink heavily at lunch. They'd smoke. I mean, it was amazing how they functioned. Well, of course, they're all dead now. Um, So we know how they functioned. It killed them. But that sort of thing used to go on. I mean, now it's, I think, understandably frowned on drinking at lunchtime. Absolutely. And it might make you causey webs, which is a really curious expression, which again, a lot of the words I'm going to mention today come from old dialect dictionaries. But to be causey webs means to neglect your work and as defined in the dictionary, to be too long on the street. In other words, you go out for lunch and you don't come back for a long time to be causey webs. Causey webs. How do you spell that? Yeah. So it's C-A-U-S-E-Y. And I think that used to mean a kind of conversation. So maybe the idea is that you were just out there gossiping with other people. And then webs, W-E-B-S. As in the French phrase causerie, uh, like yes. a conversation. It's the same okay. origin as it's C-A-U-S-E. Same idea, yeah. Oh, causey webs. Causey webs. It's funny, isn't it? And there are lots and lots of words describing what might well happen after a boozy lunch, really, which is, you know, I, I often use these words on Twitter, actually. Words like um, fudgling and to fudgel, again, a dialect dictionary. This is mentioned by Mark Forsyth, actually. And I talked last time on the podcast about his brilliant horologicon, which does exactly what we're doing today. It takes you through the day. And to fudgel is to look, to pretend as if you're incredibly busy, but actually be doing very little at all. It's an art, fudgling. Well, and, and I see people doing it in the street pretending to have phone calls, you know, holding the mobile up to the phone. And you know it can't because you're in an area that hasn't got any signal. Oh, it's so funny. I do that. I have to say, in, in the days when I used to wear heels out, when well, I just wear trainers or boots or whatever, but I just couldn't walk. I was always scared of tripping up over pavement. So I could stride as powerfully as you like across carpeted areas. But when it came to walking on the pavements, I was so slow. And I just thought I'd just look like one of those ridiculous people who just cannot you know, walk properly in heels. So I would pretend to be on the phone. I regularly did that. So I put my hand up now. <laughs> there must be a word for that. Somebody who pretends to be on the phone. Okay. So then you're you're an eye servant, which is another good word if you remember. And an eye servant is somebody who only works when the boss is looking. Oh, I like that. Mm. An eye servant. Yes. Yes. But have we got to tea time yet? Because this is... We can go from... We've, I've, I've woken from my postprandial snooze <laughs> now and I'm thinking, yes, I'm ready for tea. Where are the muffins and the crumpets? We're getting a good idea of your working day. Well, I was just going to say that actually this is about the time, if we're talking sort of three or four o'clock, where I have a fit of the clevers, which comes before the end of the day. And the fit of the clevers is a sudden realisation of how much work you've got to do. So it's a sudden spurt of activity to try and get everything done by the end of the day. So it's called a charrette also. In, uh, in French and that came into English for a while, but I prefer the fit of the clevers, which happens to me a lot at about this time. But then, as you say, it is definitely time for a cup of tea. And there are so many different ways of describing serving up tea. You want to hear some of them? I want to hear them all. I don't know if you are a, a theist, are you? A theist? Um, yes. That's somebody who believes in God, isn't it? That is somebody who believes in God, but there is a secondary meaning in the dictionary, ah. meaning a lover of tea or a person addicted to tea, really. I'm addicted to tea and I'm trying to stop having it in the afternoons. Yeah. I am addicted to tea. I don't drink coffee. Mm-hmm. I love tea. I've started in the morning having black Earl Grey, real leaves Ooh. of Earl Grey and no milk. Uh, and I'm liking that. 
and I'm trying not, I, mean, I might have one cup of tea after lunch, but I'm trying to stop because I haven't been sleeping at night and I'm thinking, oh, uh, why am I not sleeping at night? Maybe I'm having too much liquid in the afternoon and yeah. the evening and just stop taking the tea. So uh, I love tea though. I do as well. You can get decaf tea. It's not quite the same. And also, I think it does still have a bit of caffeine in it because I've made that mistake before. But like you, I'm ridiculously sensitive to caffeine. So if I have anything after midday, that's it. That's me gone. Okay, well, I'm going to give you some examples. Apparently, drowning the miller was one way (laughs) of saying, let's drown the miller was let's have a cup of tea. We have definitely mentioned before that... Forgive me, what's the origin of drowning the miller? No one knows. You know, maybe the idea is of sort of things that are ground down, like sort of tea leaves. And so if you're drowning them, you're pouring the water on top. That's my best guess. But who knows? But it's definitely there in several dictionaries. So drowning the miller and also bitching the pot. Do you remember? Remember people used to say, who's who's mother? Who's playing mother? In other words, who's going to have the role of serving the tea? And the kind of Victorian alternative to that, which I love, is bitching the pot. So usually the woman, but to bitch the pot was much more than serving tea. I think it also was to sit down and have a good gossip. And of course, tea and gossip go together. And you will find a lot of references to tea drinking as quite damning judgments on the tittle-tattle that was predominantly associated with women and their tendency to gossip. So if you remember the um, classical dictionary of the vulgar tongue, Mm -hmm. um, which was compiled by Francis Gross, who lived at the same time as Samuel Johnson, but if you remember, collected words from the sort of lower echelons of society, if you like. So he would go into the taverns and he would talk to highwaymen and he would talk to brothel keepers and prostitutes or sex workers. And and he would collect all of their language, which had never been documented before. Anyway, he lists various slang terms for tea, including prattle broth, <laughs> cat lap, and of course cat there is, is was sort of slang for a gossipy old woman, and scandal broth. So there was a definite association. And in fact, William Cobbett, the pamphleteer, was so incensed by members, female members of his household getting together and, as he thought, just sort of talking that he he said, how the wenches drink tea. And he advised them that, he said, the gossip of the tea table is no bad preparatory school for the brothel. The girl that has been, been brought up merely to boil the tea kettle and to assist in the gossip inseparable from the practice is a mere consumer of food, a pest to her employer and a curse to her husband if any man be so unfortunate as to affix his affections upon her. So really strong stuff when wow. all they were doing was having a cup of tea. <laughs> I forget who it was who said, I think it's Alice Roosevelt, if you haven't got anything to, good to say about anybody, come and sit by me. Oh, excellent, uh, excellent. It's a, it's a nice line, isn't it? Yeah, I I, but you're not a gossipy person, actually, are you? No, I hate gossip. I really, mm. I don't like gossip. And I sort of know well enough, having been, I suppose in telly like you, albeit maybe on the sort of periphery of it, but just to to know that so much of the gossip that goes around is clearly not true, or at yeah. least clearly only half true. And then it gets in the papers and then it gets sort of, you know, exaggerated even more. So um, no, I hate gossip with a passion. How about you? Funnily enough, I like old gossip. I don't like contemporary gossip. Okay. Uh, interestingly, the, the present Pope, you know, his very first pronouncement when he became Pope was to talk about gossip and say Mm. how one should avoid gossip. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? The very first thing he said, I mean, I don't indulge. I mean, I'm on the whole, I'm quite good at not 
being a gossipy type of person. Mm. I say that, but I do love reading old diaries, mm -hmm. you know, famous diaries like the political diaries of the 20th century, people like Trips Channon. Harold Nicholson. I love those diaries. And in fact, but it is a sort of, if you go back to Pepys, in a way, you're gossiping about life in the 17th you're being century. You're a bit of voyeur. It, yes. Yeah. But I suppose it's, as you say, it's kind of, it's a safer world than the kind of contemporary kind, which is usually malicious. But we often talk, don't we, about how the dictionary loves a gossip because clearly it's so full of insults and it's so full of words that, you know, are like, oh, look at them doing this, that and the other. It clearly is enshrined both in English dialect and in, you know, in, in the English dictionary. So clearly we've always been a nation of gossips, I think. Is there a dictionary definition between afternoon tea and high tea? Ooh, um, because afternoon yeah. tea I think of as being cucumber sandwiches, egg sandwiches, maybe tomato sandwiches, and cakes, scones. Yeah. That's afternoon tea. High tea I think of as having your Welsh rabbit okay. and something cooked. And do they all precede supper? Yes, they do. Oh, okay. Well, I Gosh. think high, high tea might be, as it were, what you have in the afternoon if it's going to be a late supper. If you're going to, you know, a dance, yeah. a ball, you might have high tea at about five o'clock. Okay. Then you get changed, you go out for the dance, then you'd have supper late at night. But of course, some people, I think, had dinner first before supper. But I just wonder if the dictionary gives us a definition mm. for high tea. Yeah, I'm looking it up now in the OED. So the first reference that it has is 1787. And it says, in British, Australian and New Zealand English, it is a meal eaten in the late afternoon or early evening, typically consisting of a cooked dish, bread uh -huh. and butter and tea. And yeah. then there's a little note underneath saying, if a main meal in the evening, more commonly called just tea. So that makes sense. And there are quite a few quotes here as one, for example, in the Girl's Own um, magazine, 1884. For people who are not in the habit of giving dinner parties, high tea is a capital institution. Very good. So, yeah, I, I just, I mean, I love those kind of, you know, very rare, wonderful teas where you go to somewhere very posh. I remember taking my mum to the Ritz and then we went to the Savoy for tea and we did all the, the cakes and everything. And that was a real treat. It is a treat. Tell me about the word tiffin. Mm. Well, tiffin is from Indian English, really, yeah. and I think was brought back as a sort of part of the, you know, the empire. So tiffin is, I mean, I think nowadays it just means a sort of small snack really doesn't it whereas if you took tiffin in the olden days i think you took lunch it was a light midday meal oh it, oh uh, fun enough i thought it was like high tea i thought it was an afternoon thing oh no i think but it comes from uh, the verb tiff which was to take a little drink or a sip which is um yeah definitely anglo indian usage i mean today a tiffin carrier is somebody who transports meals you know who works so hard and transport hundreds and hundreds of meals to offices etc um, they're called tiffin carriers tiffin carriers yeah and i think there's also the the containers used for transporting them are the tiffin carriers uh too but um yeah i think it was luncheon rather than than tea but um very very kind of dated now, isn't it, to talk about tiffin over here, at least in British English, I think. Yes, unless you're doing it in inverted commas and, and being a caricature. Yes, that's I, true. You know. that's so, true. So it's, time, it's time for tiffin. But it is time. We took a break, Susie. Let's do that and then the evening can beckon. Okay. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. 
Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. This is Something Rhymes with Purple. We're excited because this is our 149th episode. And that means that next time it'll be our 150th, Susie. Wow. And I want you to do some homework between now and then because I want to know what 150th is. I know there's a, a silver jubilee is 25. And I think gold is 50. Diamond is 60. We've discovered with the Queen having had a reign of 70 years, that that's platinum, apparently. I wonder what 150 is. Yeah, we'll come back to you. Let's, before we get onto the correspondence, have we got a couple of things for late afternoon or early evening? Well, yes. I mean, as I always say, if you want a good excuse that sounds very plausible for bunking off early from work um, because you're actually going to meet a friend down the pub, you can say you're off to a symposium because symposium, going right back to ancient Greece, was actually a drinking party, albeit one where you know, proper philosophical conversations took place, but it goes back to the Greek for drinking together. So symposium is the one you need. If it's quaffed-tide, do you remember that quaffed-tide? I do remember Time for a drink. If, on the other hand, you have done enough work, you've done your fit of the clevers, you've left work and you're rushing home and all you want to do is collapse on the sofa, there is a brilliant word, which might have been one of my trios once upon a time, which is represents the sound of something hard falling onto something soft. Uh, and I like to think it's of a body falling onto soft furnishings, and that's sauce, S-O-S-S. Sauce. A sauce. A um, sauce. Yes, so that would probably be me just kind of collapsing onto the sofa. Um, Tell me about your work routine when you're writing a book. I know you're writing another book. You always are writing a book. If you've got a clear day, how do you divide up the time? Because uh, there are different views on how long one can concentrate. Mm. Some people say, you know, actually, you can only concentrate for 25 minutes. You should take a break every 25 minutes. I'm about to start another book project, and I'm trying to work out what's going to be the most effective way of getting it done. What, what do you do? What's your day like? You're quite regimented about this. I... Um, a bit of a potterer. And uh, do you remember, oh. there are so many words in the dictionary for pottering. Fan for luching is one of my favourites. And I have to say that I get up and move about a lot. So I write a bit, get up, make a cup of tea, walk around, go back. Um, so I'm not, I think probably the maximum that I can keep writing for without having some kind of excursion, albeit to the kettle, is an hour, probably. But I like nothing more than having nothing in my diary and just seeing that actually I've got three days free, for example, one week. That's quite a rarity, but it's joy to me because it means I really can just dedicate myself to, to writing. How about you? Oh, I would love to have those three days free yeah, because that's do, when you, you can do it. And in the old days when I was able to do that, you know, I would work from, from eight till six and say, I've got to get my thousand words done. Mm. But I do know that one can't really concentrate. You can't really do, I don't think, much more than five hours of really good work in a day. And I'm thinking of starting at seven and trying to work through until lunchtime and wow. trying to work on the book just on days when I've got a clear morning, okay. trying to do it like that in a concentrated way. So my idea is to get down there, seven o'clock with a cup of tea and do a solid hour just with the tea 
Mm. I've got something down. Then go out, make toast, come back to another solid hour, then go back more toast, another solid. Do it like that. Okay. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's a good idea. You'll have to let me know how it works out because I end up lucubrating. Do you remember that word? Lucubrate is to, literally, it's to work by artificial light, but essentially it Um, means to burn the candle at both ends or at least to to burn it well into the midnight hours. And I'm not very good at doing that, but sometimes if my fit of the clevers comes quite late on, that's what I have to do. So, yeah, well, let me know how it goes and I might take a leaf out of your book, actually. Are you a dipnophilist? What is a dip novelist? Uh, is a that dip is somebody novelist? who loves dinner parties. Oh, so it's spelled D E I P. So um, not used very often, and you know, mostly tongue in cheek. I have to say, but it's yeah, somebody who loves dinner parties. I can't Should remember the last time I had a, a dinner party. Shall we devote a whole evening to dinner parties? I think it'd be, a, and then I can bring you some anecdotes from some <laughs> of the great dinner parties of yesteryear. Perfect. Let's do that. And let's do that. Okay. Because because we've got people lining up to ask you questions. Purple people, thank you so much for being there. Also international purple people, and we do have a few. Probably all the things we've been talking about, about afternoon words, uh, really are very British English orientated. So if you have other examples that you want to share with us, please do get in touch. It's purple at somethingelse.com. Who's been in touch with us this week, Susie? Let's listen. Dear Susie, Giles and the team, Thank you for the passion you put into the podcast. I discovered it at the start of the first lockdown and I've been an avid listener ever since. I heard you mention the word coleslaw on the podcast recently and I've often wondered if there's a link between the col or cal sound and lots of other cabbage-related words. Kohlrabi, kale, broccoli, cauliflower, collard greens and coleslaw to name the ones I can think of. If there is a link, where did this come from? And why has English missed this in the word cabbage? Or French in shoe. Thanks, Reese. Wow. French wow. in shoe, as in C H O U X being mm. the My yeah. goodness this is I mean, I know nothing about I and I do remember Murphy's Law, and I remember hearing that Cole's Law <laughs> is chopped cabbage. Cole's Law. Okay. You answer the question. It's a big one. It is a big one, but actually sort of fairly simple. I mean, I'm going to start with cabbage, which is a bit of an odd man out, which uh, goes back to uh, the French caboche, and that just meant a head. So it's related to the Latin caput, which gave us capitals in capital letter, captain, so many, so many different words. So a cabbage looks like a head. That's as simple as that. But the other ones all pretty much stem, sorry for the pun, uh, from the Latin caulis, or C-A-U-L-I-S, which did actually mean a stem or a stalk. And that in turn branched out through lots and lots of different languages. And I have to say there are siblings in even in the Viking, cal, K-A-L, for these kind of dishes or vegetables. So you will find, for example, cavolo in Italian, Spanish col, Old French choux, so that is actually related. And indeed in the coleslaw, the slaw there actually goes back to a Dutch word this time, which is Sla, S-L-A, which in turn is short for salad. So it's a cabbage salad, if you like. It gave us kale, 
Now, it gave us broccoli. It gave us the second bit of broccoli as well, a C-O-L-I. And the first bit is related to projecting bumps. So if you think about brocade embroidered on a coat, for example, you've got lots of lovely sort of little bumps of golden thread, for example. And that is related to broccoli. So it's actually what it means is it's got lots of bumps, i.e. florets, coming out of it. It gave us the collard greens and sort of the whole lot, if you like. Most of them go back to that Latin caulis, meaning a stem or stalk. And from there, you can take it back to an ancient route, which meant pretty much the same thing. Gosh, you're brilliant knowing that. Well, I oh, hope no, that comes it's in. interesting. Oh, it is interesting. Um, mm. and, and thank you, Reese, for getting it raised. Um, Trevor Aston has been in touch. Hello, Susie and Giles. Is there a word for the moments after a piece of music ends, but before the applause starts? A friend in our writing group also sings in a choir, and she says it's one of the most exquisite feelings providing the performance has gone well. <laughs> yes, what is that that moment of awe? What, what would you call it? Do you is know, I've thought long and hard about this because Lawrence, our producer, gave me a heads up on this one and I thought, surely there must be a word. And the only one I can think of is not quite right because it's quiescence, which is a beautiful word. Quiescence is a sort of a calm before the storm, if you like. It's a calming. And and lull isn't right either because lull suggests that there's been rapturous applause first, then there's a lull and then it goes back to it. So I'm going to put this out to the purple people who might be able to invent a word. It could be playful or it could be serious for that moment where you were just sort of overwhelmed by emotion before you then show it um, physically by clapping or standing up and giving an ovation, etc. So I'm putting it out to our listeners. Very good. Well, there we are. And get in touch with us, please. It's purple at somethingelse.com. Now, every week, Susie, you come up with three intriguing words. What have you got for us this week? I do. Well, the first one sort of relates to the working afternoon before, well, maybe after the rizzle and um, possibly the fit of the clevers, it goes with that, or it might relate to going home and rushing home if you've got a, a date to go to. Festinating. So to festinate is to make haste, simply to festinate. Um, this one, I don't know why this occurred to me. I think it was because I miss the sea. I, I sort of live as far away from the sea as it's possible to get if you live in Britain. And I am really a thalassophile. So that's T-H-A-L-A-S-S-O-P-H-I-L-E. And a thalassophile is a lover of the sea because thalassa was the primeval spirit of the sea. So I love that one. I seem to remember somebody saying that there's no part of the British Isles that is more than 70 miles from the sea. Wherever okay. you are in the British Isles, you're no further than 70 miles from the mm. sea. It's intriguing, yeah. isn't it? Do you think that's true? I have to check that one out. I don't know. I guess it mm. depends what yeah, seas we're talking yeah, about. But yeah. And the last one, I don't know if I've done this one before, but it came up on Countdown recently and I just thought, this is such a useful word and most of us didn't know there was a word for it. And it's a ferrule, F-E-R-R-U-L-E, and it's that ring around a pencil rubber that keeps the rubber in place or it's the steel tip at the top of an umbrella. And that is a ferrule, something made of iron originally, but oh, used yes. for all those kind of, you know, doofits, watsits, doofuses, that kind of thing that actually have quite important functions. Do you have a trick for remembering these words? I mean, I know you, as it were, prepare them mm. for the podcast yeah. each week. But I often find when just chatting to you normally that you can come up with these words simply from your head. How do you remember them? How can we remember those words. I mean, I, I want a, a word like rizzle that you introduced us to earlier for that postprandial snooze. I'm yeah. having a little rizzle. 
how would how do I get that? Because I, I can see a week from now, but I think oh, she came up with that very good word. Are there tricks? Are there well, ways of remembering words? For me, it's familiarity, obviously, because I'm exposed to words all the time and I write them down and then they will come up again and again in my head or in whatever I'm doing. So I'm much luckier than most because I, I encounter them all the time. I think for me, and it would be different for everybody in terms of memory aids, it's writing them down. So I have a little notebook. I've kept notebooks all through my life to jot words down that fascinate me and just write them down. And for me, that's the best way. Good. I find also actually writing it down, not typing it, makes the yeah, difference. Yeah, it definitely does. As I think, you know, a few years ago, my son and daughter-in-law and I, we did a three-person version of Shakespeare's play Hamlet. Yes. And which was put on in London. And to learn the lines... It was quite challenging because I was playing Claudius and Polonius wow. and um, assorted other characters. I found it really, really helped that I kept writing the lines out yeah. in longhand yeah. in a notebook. So I, I actually wrote my script several, and, and the process of writing it really did no, help. I, I totally um, see that. Never mind a three-person Hamlet. Next week I'm going to see Eddie Izzard in rehearsal for a one-person Hamlet. She mm -hmm. is giving us the uh, complete play, uh, just one person. Wow. Which I think is going to that be fascinating. Be well, I love your three words. Thank you. Do you have a poem? I do have it. Well, it's a poem, really. It's one of my favourite poems, so it's actually in my head. And it, it comes to me because you talked earlier about burning the candle at both ends when you were mm. doing your writing. And this is a poem by Edna St. Vincent Millay, who was an American poet. She was born in the 1890s. She was a playwright. And she was hugely popular, but not held in great respect by literary people, but the people loved her. Yeah. She was an interesting character and died in America about 1950. And this is one of her most famous poems. It's just four lines. My candle burns at both ends. It will not last the night. But ah, my foes, and oh, my friends, it gives a lovely light. That's beautiful. She's definitely lucubrating there. Yeah. Yes. So remind me on lucubrating. What was lucubrating Lucubrating again? is to work by artificial light, so to burn the midnight oil, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Lucubrate. lucubrating. I love it. Great word. All the words you know are brilliant. You are extraordinary, Susie Dent. Oh. So, look, I hope next week we'll you'll be wearing a party frock. <laughs> uh, I shall try and f find a fun jumper yeah. for our 150th podcast. Amazing. Oh, my. And if we can't come up with a word for it, for what the 150th anniversary should be, maybe one of the purple people can. Thank you, wherever you are in the world, for listening to Something Rhymes With Purple. If you like the show, do keep following us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, wherever you find us. And do recommend us to friends. And get in touch via purple at somethingelse.com. Something without the G. Something Rhymes with Purple is a Something Else production. It was produced by Lawrence Bassett and Harriet Wells with additional production from Chris Skinner, Jen Mystery, Jay Beale and the Fudgler himself. It's got to be gully.